0: Hi everyone, and welcome to the Nowhere podcast. Technology is constantly running in the background of our lives, yet for most of us, it's invisible. On Nowhere, we explore the intended and unintended influences that geospatial technology has on the real world. These are the stories of how geospatial tech unexpectedly affects our lives. I'm Jonathan Newfeld, CEO of Tectera and host of Nowhere. Today, my guest is James Floyer, Program Director and Senior Avalanche Forecaster for Avalanche Canada. Hi James, thanks for being here.
1: Thanks a lot for having me on, John.
0: So Avalanche Canada is a non-government, non-profit that focuses on avalanche safety for people who are traveling in the backcountry. And I know you provide resources that help people decide where to go. For our listeners who don't frequent avalanche terrain, maybe tell me how avalanches form and really why we should be concerned about them.
1: Yes, that's a, a good place to start. Avalanches are a winter phenomenon that uh, affect the mountains anywhere where the steep terrain and sufficient snowfall. And there's a couple of main types of avalanche that we need to worry about. One is loose snow avalanches, and that's really a breakdown of the snow surface. But more importantly, we need to worry about slab avalanches. And slab avalanches, for the most part, are the dangerous avalanches because they catch people unawares. And people can be affected in different ways from avalanches avalanches. avalanches. Obviously, avalanches can sort of hit valley bottom areas where people might be hiking on trails. And luckily in Canada, we don't have a lot of infrastructure that's located in those areas. Most of the danger in Canada is to backcountry users. And that's people who are moving around in the mountains in the winter. Maybe they're skiing, maybe they're snowmobiling, maybe they're snowshoeing or ice climbing. And In the course of moving around the mountains, you have to be very careful for avalanches and you have to do a little bit of work to learn where avalanches could happen and under what conditions they happen.
0: So uh, tell me about the MIN and how you guys decided to create that.
1: So the Mountain Information Network is our public observation system and users can submit observations from the mountains and it's really useful for us because it augments the information that comes in through other sources and it allows users to localize the danger based on very local sets of observations we came up with that in response to a couple of main things you know firstly we recognized that there was this untapped resource of information that could be sourced from public members and then secondarily We wanted a way for users to be able to localize or pinpoint things which maybe were slightly different from what the forecast was saying just by virtue of our large areas. We have such big areas in Western Canada. And of course, we're going to see variation either east-west or sometimes north-south. And so it is a useful tool for people to be able to post basically what they see. It actually has another use as well, which is a more curious use, and that is a little bit of a personal feedback and a personal validation piece. So we actually suggest as part of people's daily process that through posting information to the Mountain Information Network, there's a certain amount of self-analysis that can happen with that and users can sort of ask themselves okay well in the course of what i did today and the conditions that i saw now i'm posting these for other people to see did i make good decisions was that a reasonable thing to do was it a reasonable set of choices to make during the day
0: That's fantastic. A lot of being safe in avalanche terrain means making good choices about where to travel. And so I love that concept of using the information network to help people reflect on their day and think about, did I travel in the right places? Did I make good choices? And then hopefully they can honestly and concisely share that information with the public.
1: Yes, that's right. And it's quite a valuable tool for doing that. Sort of fits in maybe towards the end of this daily process idea that we have, which sort of guides people through their day at different stages, from the planning stages through to making choices about individual slopes and making good judgment about how to move through the mountains. And then this is the last part. They reflect on your day and and give back a little bit to the mountain community. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And so in that daily process, I think it probably kicks off with checking the avalanche forecast and understanding what the conditions are. Let's talk a little bit about how Avalanche Canada creates that forecast because I know a fair bit of work goes into that. So what's the starting point for building out an avalanche forecast?
1: Yeah, so when we think about avalanche forecasting, then obviously we're, a big part of that is gathering data and gathering information. And we're talking right now about the public observations, and those make up a, an important part of the observations that we use for a forecast. But there's also other sources too, and we use professional data that comes from operations such as ski hills, such as heli-ski operations, such as highway operations where where they exist close to those mountain areas. And all of that information is combined with observations about the weather. So we have a network of weather stations and some of these different Agencies like Ministry of Transportation Infrastructure in British Columbia have networks of weather stations. So we query those weather stations for information about what has recently happened, how much snow has happened, how much wind there's been. And then we put all of those observations together with a forecast, a weather forecast. And it's that weather forecast that allows us to push out the avalanche conditions into two, three days into the future. So we sort of start with an analysis or a now nowcast, which is the best assessment of the conditions right now, and then we push that out into the future using a forecast.
0: So you start with the existing conditions and you look at your different forecast areas, right? So for one forecast area, you're going to look at the existing conditions. And then if I'm hearing this right, based on the weather and the reports from the professional operators, as well as the recreationalists, you're going to use that to build out your forecast for the next day. Is that right?
1: Yes, that's right. Yes, exactly.
0: And then given the size of that geographic area, a heli-ski operator or a cat-ski operator or a a transportation organization could cover a fair amount of terrain. But these areas we're talking about are tens of thousands of square kilometers. So maybe tell me about the role that the Mountain Information Network, these recreationalist reports, plays in filling in some of those gaps.
1: Yeah, that is a great question. And you're absolutely right. I mean, there is quite a lot of commercial winter sort of recreation that happens, and that's our heli skiing, our cat skiing, and our our ski hills. But overall, it makes up a fairly small percentage of the overall area, the overall mountainous area in Western Canada. And often the recreational users are choosing places to go that don't necessarily coincide with those sort of commercial recreation areas. So there is a large number of snowmobile zones, for example, and some of those are managed areas, some of those are outside managed areas, but in those areas, they don't typically over-intersect with other land users. And so it's really important to be able to get information from those areas to make sure that there isn't anything different going on with the snowpack. Likewise, skiers, ice climbers as well have their unique zones. So the mountain information network The data that comes into that does a really important job of augmenting the professional data. And it's becoming such that, you know, we're almost seeing as much information coming from the public domain as we are from the professional domain. And in fact, during the COVID year, especially the first full winter after COVID, which would have been the winter of 2020-21, we saw it flip around and we actually were relying more heavily on data from the Mountain Information Network than we were from the professional sources.
0: I believe that. I mean, uh, anytime I went to the mountains during that time, everyone and their dog was out. It was just chock full of people. And so I can imagine that the amount of data you were receiving just absolutely exploded. And that would have been necessary because if I recall, at the time, the professional operators you know, weren't able to operate either.
1: That's right. There was a lot of challenges operating at that time. And we put out a call for users to sort of step up to the plate, and uh, users very much did. And we're very appreciative of that and uh, thankful for that. But of course, ultimately, we're using that. We're recycling the information that we get back into the forecast product to create a better product for users going into the mountains.
0: Right. It's a positive feedback loop. The more data that gets put in, the better the forecasts
1: are. Yep all thanks to the underlying GIS and the map-driven systems that we've put in place.
0: Absolutely. And so has that trend continued now? Are you still seeing a tremendous number of reports coming in through the MIN?
1: Luckily it has, yes. The MIN is uh, extremely popular. I would say that we, if there was trends, we see good interest early season. And again, we sort of put out the call early season because at this time of year, we're talking right now in November, the end of November, Users get really interested in the backcountry, but it's a little too early for many of the commercial operators to be safely and reliably running, more in terms of sort of early season hazards rather than necessarily the safety due to avalanches. So there is a, a sense of duty, if you like, or you know, some sort of additional sense that there isn't that much information out there. So I think people sort of, again, feel that calling and stepping up to the plate to submit data at this point in time. And then we see, I guess, other pulses of information come through. Sometimes it's associated with a long weekend. Sometimes it's associated with, I would say, unusual conditions or dangerous conditions that might come around if we're dealing with A difficult week player, or we're seeing surprise avalanches, we do see a a spike in interest. And then we often see a spike of interest when the snow conditions are just really good as well, and people are loving life and getting out there. And that's great too.
0: I believe that. That's a fantastic time to be getting those data reports in. Absolutely. So um, I know the MIN has been a big success for you. Tell me one of the stories that came out of a MIN report that really stuck with your team and demonstrates the value of having users submit this geographic data?
1: Yeah, so we do occasionally see times where seeing posts can quite dramatically change our understanding or maybe sort of Tell us that conditions have reached a certain threshold, and I certainly remember a time a couple of years ago up in our North Rockies area. So we're talking sort of north of Prince George, north and east of Prince George here, and we were dealing with a weak layer. And in this case, we had a surface hoar layer, and surface hoar is these feathery crystals that grow on the surface of the snow. When they're on the surface, they don't pose a hazard at all. They're actually really nice to to ride on, and We were gradually getting snowfall buried, and initially it was coming in quite nice and light and fluffy. And again, when you've got that kind of situation, 30, maybe even 40 centimeters of very unconsolidated snow, the hazard wasn't very significant. But we're very aware during that time that things can change very quickly because we've got this weak layer present. And we started to see these min reports of larger avalanches. We're talking sort of size two and a half, and I think I remember one or two size threes that people were triggering or they were seeing in the mountains. And users were taking photos of these, which is fantastic, and submitting them, especially in the sort of the northeastern corner of that region where it gets very windy. We were seeing the change in conditions happening faster than we had anticipated. And that wind was compressing the snow into a slab, into a more cohesive slab, slab near the surface. The weak layer was present, and we were seeing both natural and human triggered avalanches. So, you know, we responded by that, obviously, by ramping up the danger. But, you know, that was certainly an example where that information, those data from the men directly impacted the forecast.
0: I love that example because I think it highlights you know, the power of crowd-based information in informing users about the spatial variability of some of these conditions. I mean, if people go to your website, avalanche.ca, and look at the forecast regions, you know, they'll see they're absolutely massive. So to highlight this particular spot where the wind was different and the conditions were forming up differently, I think provides tremendous value because it would be impossible to pinpoint that otherwise.
1: You're absolutely right. And in fact, in the daily process, we have a step that actually talks to validating the conditions or verifying the conditions. And what we mean by that is, let's say in the forecast... There's a moderate forecast, and we talk about maybe there being 5 or 10 centimeters of snow. And we might talk about being careful in alpine or wind-affected areas. But maybe in some of the areas, like you said, you talk about this variability, we might have an area that sort of just by chance and by fluke of weather might see 15 or 20 centimeters of snow. 15 or 20 centimeters of snow, if it's blown by the wind, can easily be wind drifted into these wind slab pillows that might be 30 40 maybe even 50 centimeters thick and right next to the ridge lines might be quite different and quite quite dangerous so that's sort of you know what we mean by verifying conditions if you go out there and you see 20 or 25 centimeters and there was only five to 10 in the forecast then that's the flag to basically adjust you know, mentally adjust the forecast, but adjust your decisions and your route accordingly. Right, absolutely.
0: Now, I know Avalanche Canada has one other resource to help fill in some of these data deserts in your large forecasting areas, and that's your Avalanche field team. So maybe tell me a little bit about what your field team does and how Avalanche Canada uses these group of individuals to uh, fill in.
1: Yeah, so we have six field teams around Canada. One of those is in the east, uh, in Newfoundland, western Newfoundland. And then the remaining five are in western Canada. We have one in Fernie, we have one in Smithers, one in Prince George, one in Campbell River, and one based in Whitehorse in the Yukon. And those, all of those locations are consistent with our data-sparse areas. So these are areas that more consistently we get less information from. And our field team goes out around about four times a week. And their job is to gather information about the state of the snowpack and make observations of avalanche conditions. And they feed that back into the forecast center, which is here in Revelstoke. And they also try to demonstrate best practices as well. What I mean by that is they're making choices in the course of their day which are consistent with the conditions that they're seeing on the ground. And we try and demonstrate to the public through social media posts what those choices are. So when things are not as dangerous, the hazard might be low or, or maybe moderate, they're going to make slightly more aggressive choices. They might you know, feel comfortable moving up a steeper slope to gain into a different area of terrain. While when it's more hazardous, maybe we're looking at a considerable or a, or a high danger, or if there's specific pieces of the hazard, like overhanging cornices that they want to avoid, then they'll indicate that on social media posts and they'll sort of maybe draw arrows to show where they went and how they avoid and how they move through the terrain under those conditions. So those are the sort of two primary roles of the field teams. And they've become really valuable for us, and we feel much more confident. In fact, you know, in some of those areas, we wouldn't be able to write a forecast really without that information that comes in from the field teams.
0: You know, a few years ago, I got to spend some time with your field team based out of Fernie, and I was tremendously impressed with their professionalism and their athleticism and their ability to navigate and understand avalanche terrain. So their contribution is certainly invaluable to creating these forecasts.
1: Well, that's very kind of you to say so. And We certainly take pride in our work and a big part of it is, is living what we say as well. So, And our field teams all really personify that professionalism and they really want to demonstrate best practices for traveling in the mountains.
0: So let's go back to this idea of a daily process for individuals who are headed out to the backcountry. Can you walk us through what someone would do as they're planning a backcountry trip and how they would rely on this spatial information from uh, Avalanche Canada?
1: Yeah, so our daily process starts with getting the forecast. So we want users to get up-to-date information as much as they can. And the best place, obviously, is the forecast at avalanche.ca, and then you move into a trip planning phase, and you might do that the day before, the night before, possibly you're doing it the morning of the trip, but you're using the best information you have at the time, and you're using your forecast, your avalanche forecast, to select the terrain or the type of trip that you think is appropriate. So you're going to select a different trip if the hazard is considerable compared with if it's low. And then the third part is checking your gear. So avalanche safety does require certain equipment, and we have what's called the avalanche essentials. And the avalanche essentials comprise a transceiver, an avalanche transceiver, a probe, and a shovel. And the transceiver is a device that sends out a signal, and you can also turn it into receive. It allows you to locate somebody who might be buried under the snow, a probe is used to pinpoint that location and then shovel you need to dig that person out if the worst happens and they do get caught in an avalanche and get buried so that's the essential gear but obviously there's other gear such as communications devices you know your backpack your warm clothing all of those kind of things that goes into having a safe trip the fourth one we talked a little bit about already which is verifying conditions so at The trailhead, or maybe before the trailhead, if you've got access to a remote weather station information, it's a really good idea to verify what was said in the forecast against what you're actually seeing, just to make sure there's no surprises. And the easiest one is the snowfall amounts. You know, for example, were was the forecast talking about five to ten centimeters, but you're actually seeing twenty centimeters at the trailhead. That's a big flag to say, okay, well, we need to be careful today. We might need to select lower angled terrain to keep ourselves safe. The fifth one is using good travel habits. And these travel habits are regular routine things that you choose to do, which just improve your odds of not getting caught in an avalanche. So we're talking about using safe areas to group up. We're talking about traveling one time through avalanche terrain. We're talking about using islands of safety. Maybe there's some areas of dense trees that you can sort of use to move from one place to another. And then, of course, we're also talking about making use of our transceivers, making sure they're turned on, doing the checks that you need to do. So all of these good travel habits go into improving the odds of safety The sixth point is evaluating slopes. So every time you come to a a steep slope, sort of more than 35 degrees, whether you're traveling under it or you're riding on it, then that's a flag to think about whether or not that slope is a reasonable place to go. And the primary tool for that as well as the avalanche danger, is your avalanche problems. And your avalanche problems are a little bit more detail that's incorporated into the forecast about exactly the nature of the avalanche hazard. And we might talk about things like wind slab, which occur in wind-affected slopes, or we might talk about persistent slabs that are affecting certain aspects and certain elevations, for example. And if your slope coincides with one of those, it may be a flag to say, okay, well, that slope's a little bit too steep. It's convex. It's large slope. Um, it's coinciding with a problem that we know about. So that's I'm going to leave that slope alone. I'm going to select the smaller slope that's a little bit lower angle. There's less consequence. And I'm going to either ski or snowmobile or snowshoe in this area rather than, rather than that one. And then the final piece of the daily process is this reflection. And the reflection is your analysis of your day and just that questioning of, did I make good choices, did I not? And the reason that's so important is because avalanches are a wicked learning environment. We call this a wicked learning environment. And that means that the kind of feedback you get it's not very nice. Getting caught in avalanche has severe consequences. It's not nice.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's a hard cycle to iterate, isn't it? It sure is, yeah. So thank you for that. I, I think, you know, from a geospatial thinking perspective, it really highlights that every aspect of this requires knowing where you're going and thinking geospatially about it, right? Understanding the forecast and the region it covers, you know, mapping that with a mental model of where your trip is going and what type of terrains might be there. While you're on the trip, you have to have an understanding of what the terrain looks like and how you want to move through it safely. And then, of course, reflecting on it and saying, did my plan meet up with reality and were my choices solid? From a geospatial perspective, everything involved in that requires requires geospatial thinking, and I think it highlights it very well.
1: Everything revolves around the map, that's right, and you know, we used to deal with paper maps, those are becoming less commonly used, so of course now everything revolves around our digital map world, both right from the planning through to being in the field, making those choices, navigating through the terrain, and as you say, the uh, reflection and then the reporting on that information at the end of the day is all driven spatially.
0: So what's coming up next for Avalanche Canada? You know, this is all heavily geospatial work. So how do you see Avalanche forecasting evolving over time?
1: Yeah, so I mean, one of the things that the increased amount of information that we have available, which has been leveraged through the Mountain Information Network in big part actually, is a strong desire to be able to increase the resolution of what we can provide to the public and how we can organize our forecast regions. So we are intending to move to a more flexible forecast region system where regions are put together using a combination of smaller subregions rather than having our large regions. And we're hoping that's going to solve a couple of problems for us. One is we don't always get the weather and the snowpack that forms these neat sort of regional areas, basically. So you know, so we're hoping that that'll reduce this problem of spatial variability within the areas. And the second problem is just wanting occasionally to be able to highlight a hot spot. Sometimes there's a local area which, for some set of reasons, has a much more dangerous snowpack, and uh, we want to be able to highlight those areas when those conditions are in effect
0: that's really interesting and, and we'll have to check in with you maybe at the end of the season or next year and find out how that went i love that concept of carving up your giant forecast areas into more flexible weather-based regions it's a shame the weather doesn't conform to your map defined regions
1: the weather makes it interesting and i guess that is the source of it all it creates our winter snowpack and uh you know it is eventually ultimately what brings us the great winter riding conditions that we all enjoy.
0: Absolutely. So where can people go to learn more or to submit their own min reports?
1: So it it all happens on the website at avalanche.ca. We have a mobile app as well that has the same functionality as the website. So um, that's where to go. It's fairly intuitive. Uh, You can look for the little drop the pin icon, which allows you to submit an observation. It's a simple thing to do. It only takes a few minutes at the end of the day, and it's really valuable both for people's own part of their own personal process and then for the wider community.
0: All right, well, thank you, James. I really appreciate you being here and discussing all the geospatial technology that goes into avalanche forecasting. So thank you very much, and I hope you have a wonderful winter.
1: Thank you very much, and you too.
0: This is the Nowhere Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Neufeld. You can find Nowhere at nowherepodcast.com, on Twitter at Nowhere underscore pod, and you can find me at John underscore Neufeld. See you later.